Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... Then it has the potential to actually tip the result away from physiological integrity. The, the suit seems to have undermined your ability to evaluate the sweet spot of the racket was the size of a penny <laughs> because they're not used to the energy contribution from the equipment. You know, the famous Cominetti routines that got perfect scores are now warm-ups. Welcome to the Science of Sport. My name is Mike Finch, and as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. And today we're talking all about tech and tech in sports specifically, but also a little bit of a discussion around tech that's not directly related to sport, but also the world that we live in, which is uh, the cell phones and the computers and all those sort of things that uh, infect our lives. So part of, the, part of the discussion today is going to be about how tech actually affects sport, um, how it affects us not only in terms of improving performance, the technology involved, some of the products that sportsmen use, and um, also the effect of whether tech has actually been beneficial for the performance of sportsmen around the world over the last 50, 80 years, or whether in fact it has been a hindrance in many ways. So we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff. But uh, let's, Ross, start off with that discussion about what is tech in sport? Let's just kind of define tech in sport. So that might seem like a stupid question to some people. It's um, broad. But, but I think it's actually really important because tech is so pervasive that it's very difficult to consider tech's impact on sport without considering tech's impact on society. So I would, I would classify societal technology distinct from sporting technology. And when we talk about societal, things like cars, mobile phones, computers, internet, all within the last two or three generations have massively changed the way we interact with the world. And I don't think you can then divorce sport from society. How's that possible? So for instance, I was listening to a really fascinating podcast with Eddie Jones, who's the coach of the England rugby team. And they asked him about some of the challenges coaching today compared to when he began, because he's been around the block more than once. And he said one of the biggest challenges that even though the fundamentals remain the same, the way that you deliver those fundamentals, the way that you communicate to the players has changed because of smartphones. And he explained that players today communicate in ways that are completely different. They don't do face-to-face. They don't do conversations. They prefer social media, messaging, images, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. Yeah. So, and, and in fact, if you just listen to any business leader talk about the challenge of leading millennials compared to Gen X, compared to Gen Y, compared to baby boomers, and the socio-cultural things, all of which are impacted by tech, then you start to understand that technology must make a huge difference to sports performance. So I suppose we have to ring so fence. In other words, to, to kind of distill that, it's about the distraction of tech that affects the game. 
It affects the way the sportsmen perform. So distraction is one way. Yeah. The other way is that it just literally changes the way we interact with our world. Yeah. And then a coach who wants to impart the same message as he did 20 years ago has to think differently about how he imparts that message. So that's what Eddie was saying is that in the past, he would say to the players in a team meeting, this is what we do. Yeah. His words, 60% of the team will get it and they'll go off and do it. Now he has to think about doing it visually, he has to demonstrate it, he has to do it verbally, he has to show them images, he has to do <laughs> five or six different things to try and reach as many people as possible. And that's because people now are brought up differently to the way they were before yeah. and so forth. Then you get, so that's not so much distraction as just changing the way we interact with our world. Then on distraction, I remember once speaking to a Kenyan coach who was a himself a former Olympic medalist and now coaches and I moved them. And he was saying, I think semi-jokingly, that if his athletes get a cell phone, it's worth 30 seconds on a marathon. Makes them slower by 30 seconds. Yeah. If they get a car, three minutes. And I think his point was, again, I think facetiously, his point was that in some sports, tech is actually more of a distraction and a deterrent to performance than it is a benefit. So. Anyway, long-winded answer is that I think for our discussion, we want to ring fence technology into only that tech that is applied in sport. And I think then, even there, you have indirect sporting tech and you yeah. have direct. So when we talk about direct, we're thinking tennis rackets, running shoes, swimsuits, speed skates. When we talk indirect, the obvious thing is computers. The ability of a coach, of an athlete, to now measure and monitor and analyze at levels of detail that even 10, 15 years ago were impossible has massively changed sporting performance indirectly. Or the what? actually, let's park performance because maybe it hasn't. But but <laughs> I was it's just changed say the, that, yeah. It's changed the way we engage with sport yeah. enormously yeah. Uh, compared to 15, 20 years ago. So tech is pervasive, it's everywhere, but we'll put some boundaries around what we talk about. Well, let's define some of those um, th those big tech stories of the last few years. Um, there's a couple that are current. There's a couple that that have been in the sort of sporting zeitgeist over the last sort of ten years. Probably the, one of the most controversial ones was the swimsuit discussion around the speedo. I think they were called skin suits or something like that, um, where the advantage of the swimmer um, was so massive wearing these suits that in fact um, the world body for swimming, I think it's FINA, uh, banned the suits. Um, that was the first case where. And as far as I can remember, other than maybe cycling to some extent, where the actual product was proven to be at a distinct advantage. So it was a not a level playing field for everybody participating. Right. And I guess the challenges there were that the tech arrived suddenly. Some would argue that it was, it was predictably sudden, in yeah. which case they might have anticipated it. But it was sudden enough that it suddenly distorted the the integrity of the outcome basically. Yeah. And it made a large enough difference that it confounded the results for a long time. So there's some really interesting stuff on the internet. You know, in 1992 in Barcelona, everyone swam in the old tiny briefs, the men, yeah. and the woman was in the classic suit. Yeah. By 1996, the first suits, swimsuits were coming out that reduced drag. By 2000, it was body length, shoulder all the way to ankle. And then in 2008 was the big revolution. That's the one you're talking about where Speedo brought out what was called the LZR swimsuit just before the Beijing Olympics. And that helped swimmers break, in those Olympic Games, 25 world records, 60 Olympic records. Yeah. All but, I was looking this up, all but two Olympic records fell in the Beijing Olympic Games, yeah. thanks, thanks to that suit. 
normally you get between nine and 10, say, world records at a major championship. By 2009, because now Speedo basically initiated an, an arms race, all the other manufacturers matched them. Yeah. There were 43 world records in the world championships that year. And what did the suit do just for the, so for matter of clarity? Different things according to different people, but a few dif- a few concepts, principles. Yeah. Number one was that it incorporated these panels initially of what was basically polyurethane. And Speedo marketed this as a, as a partnership with NASA and that they'd shown in aerodynamic, hydrodynamic testing that these panels had zero drag. By 2009, the entire suit was made of this polyurethane stuff. Yeah. So no drag. So that's a massive advantage, obviously, because swimming is hugely inefficient. You're overcoming water. Yeah. So zero drag is a big advantage. Number two is that they compressed the body into a narrower shape. And number three is that they aided buoyancy. And by 2009, swimmers were wearing two of them. Yeah. Um, for for an even greater buoyancy well, benefit. Two suits, two suits on top of each other. One on top of the other. So they're basically like sort of swimming sausages. Yeah, and they were <laughs> super tight. I mean, I, I heard stories never confirmed, admittedly, let me state that, of guys having to be cut out of the suit at the finish. Yeah. Because it had to be tight for the compression. And I remember speaking to a couple of South African Olympic swimmers, and they were saying that because of those mechanisms, the the the, the torpedoing of the human body by compressing it, and the buoyancy, the suit was disproportionately helpful to bigger swimmers. Yeah. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm a swimming expert. I think you've, you've had more exposure to water than I have. <laughs> um, but my, my observation of that period, 2008 and 9, is that swimmers did change. Yeah. You had Biedermann, you had the French swimmer, uh, Elaine, oh, I've got name Nesia. Um, these massive, massive guys. And it, it, it did seem to do that, you know. So the swimmers' perceptions seem, in, at least in my anecdotal viewing, to have been correct. By 2009, I think FINA thought this is actually getting out of control. Um, <laughs> 43 world records in, in one championship was it, ridiculous. It essentially questions the integrity of records because of that. That's, that's the reason why FINA probably put the brakes on saying records are not don't have the same integrity with people wearing the suit. Yeah, initially they were coming under pressure because only one company had a suit. Yeah. So if you if you weren't in that speedo in Beijing, your Olympic dreams were two percent undermined. You know, because that was if that was the benefit of the suit, yeah, you you lost out on medals potentially. So, and this is the philosophical issue around tech: is at what point does it become unfair? Yeah. And I think the simple answer with a complex explanation is tech is unfair if it's unequally distributed and if it makes a bigger difference to performance than the normal difference between athletes. Yeah. So in other words, if athlete A physiologically is 0.4% better than athlete B and tech makes a 1% difference, then it has the potential to actually tip the result away from physiological integrity, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that was the big issue. So the, the, the most famous controversy around it was that Phelps gets beaten, I mean, well beaten in those 2009 World Championships by Germans from a Biedermann. And Phelps' coach objects. He says, this is outrageous. It's ridiculous. One year later, post the ban, Phelps is again better than the German athlete, but they're both two seconds slower than they were before. Or, well, Phelps is one and the, and the German guy's two. So, so the, the suit seems to have undermined your ability to evaluate the swimmer yeah that's the problem yeah so when i watch swimming and when i compare 
swimming world records is a little bit different because they do get broken so often. But records have meaning in swimming and cycling and in track and field For athletics sure. and running. And their integrity is key to sport, really, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Because there's, a, there's an assumption that when I watch an athlete run a marathon or long jump or 100 meters or swim, whatever it is, yeah. that I'm seeing a valid comparison with his peers, yeah. present and past. Now, nobody is comparing... Uh, Michael Phelps to Mark Spitz directly because yeah. they're, they're generations apart. In the same way, we're not comparing Elliot Kipchoge, current marathon world record holder, to Jim Peters who held it in the 1950s. We're not comparing Federer to Rod Laver, although people do. <laughs> but it's a stupid question. Would Federer beat Laver? Of course. But it's, but it's, yeah. it's not it's not A lot has changed in, the, in those times. Too much has yeah. changed. But when you watch an event today... You, you want some confidence that you're seeing the things that matter decide the result. And that means, at least in my opinion, for running, cycling, swimming, you don't want equipment to decide the result. You want physiology to do it. So another great example is Graham Obrey, um, 19394, breaking the world record and the one-hour world record. Developed a very special bike, which uh, if there's a movie about it, in fact, a great movie about his, mm. his life story. He was a scientist first and foremost, a cyclist almost second. Developed a very special aerodynamic bike, broke the world record. Um, and then as a result of that, um, the UCI went and actually banned the, where the bikes are allowed to be developed. In other words, you couldn't. there, there were certain, certain limitations from a design perspective that you had to have if you were going to do the record. So, of course, the record dropped down, um, and now everybody that does the record has to be doing it on the same bike. But the UCI did the same as what FINA did to some extent. They weren't going to allow technology to affect the integrity of, of performances and of world records. Yes, and so initially they banned the position. Because yeah. Obrey, Obrey designed a bike that that was the second one. The first one was a tuck where Obrey basically had his arms underneath his yes, chest. That's right. And then um, how he rode that a, bike. In an extremely <laughs> vertical position. Yeah. And it was really interesting when you read up on that. It sounds as though that there was an aerodynamic advantage, but he also felt that there was a force producing advantage because yeah. of the position he'd put himself in on the bike. Um, you would have seen Boardman won the 92 Olympics lapping Jens Lehmann in the final of the individual pursuit riding a bike called the Lotus 108. Yes. And that was a period in the 1990s where the world one-hour record was being broken, sometimes weekly. I mean, Obrey broke it a week later, Boardman broke it. They, they kept changing this. Indurain broke it, Drominger broke it. Now, okay, in the 1990s, bike tech wasn't the only performance advantage going around. There was considerable doping, I think, also in some of those instances. But the point was that the tech... The, the UCI felt that the tech was changing the merits of the performance. And so they, and this is where I think it becomes quite profound, is they, they impose a new limit and they say from this point forward in 2000, you have to be in a normal cycling position on a normal bike. Yeah. Which takes us back to how Eddie Merckx had set the record in 1972, a shade over 49 kilometers. Yeah. So Chris Boardman, who in 1996 had covered 56 something Ks, goes and does the record according to the new boundaries, tech boundaries, and he breaks Merckx's record by nine meters. So in other words, between 1972 and 2000, we see very little human performance advances. Yeah. But the human capacity has gone up, or the, the record has gone up by seven kilometers. But when you take the tech away, it yeah. falls by seven kilometers. Yeah. Now, that's that's a data point of one. 
And there's probably more to it than just that. Yeah. But Boardman's interesting because w within his career, he's seven kilometers different on one bike compared to the other. Yeah. And that kind of tells you how much of an impact the tech had. Yeah. So let's move on to a, a, a kind of a gray area. So we defined that there are a couple of sports that have actually made decisions around about the integrity of those of those um, records. Currently, we're dealing with an issue around the new Nike shoe, the 4% shoe, um, which independently has been proven to be have an advantage, a, a sort of mechanical advantage. Yes. So Nike, there's a patent application which listeners can find online for a, a shoe that Nike, in their own words, describes as having a spring, a carbon fiber spring plate. And it's also got foam, which subsequent testing has shown to also add to the energy return. And the lab testing shows that this shoe costs less oxygen to run at the same speed. So when we put an athlete on a treadmill, we can measure how much oxygen they're using. Right. It's like a car using fuel. And the studies, and there's one study that was supported by Nike, but it was subsequently confirmed independently, show that good runners, so we're talking 31, 32-minute guys for 10K. So use, not us then? Not us. Um, <laughs> no, definitely not us. Use 4% less oxygen to run at the same speed when wearing this Vaporfly 4%. That's how it got its name. Yeah. Um, what, what is the performance advantage? Yeah, so I was going to say, what does that mean for performance? It depends on the speed of the runner. Yeah. A, a slow athlete, for every 1% reduction in oxygen cost, runs 1% faster. Right. A fast runner, less than 1%. So at world record marathon paces, they reckon that 1% reduction in oxygen is worth about a 0.6 reduction in time. Okay. So when the Nike studies suggest 4% oxygen benefit, that's a 2.6% performance benefit. Now, right. extrapolate that down into that's numbers, can you? Because over the 123 minutes that it takes to run a marathon, that's three minutes. Four. So when okay. you... so so. Now, at this point, skeptics will say, oh, we're not sure we trust the lab results. Does performance actually, and I'm with you. Yeah. But even if, even if the performance benefit is half of what the theory predicts, it's still one and a half minutes. Yeah. So now when you're watching a marathon and someone sets a PB by a minute, when the half marathon, with European half marathon falls by a minute, when the marathon world record goes by over a minute, tell me that that's not the shoe. You see, you can't. That's the problem with it. Because I want to know that I'm seeing a human performance. I want to know that I'm seeing an, a unique athlete, not the same athlete running in a better shoe. And that's where, that's where the tech starts, in my opinion, to undermine the confidence in the integrity of the performance. Because there's only two things that do that to performance. One is doping and the other one's technology. Yeah. But tech's never really been in play. And yes, there have been shoe companies that have come out and said, our new insole or midsole is worth 1%. But that's trivial. That's, that's smaller than the natural day-to-day -day variation in running economy. So right. it's actually negligent. For me as a scientist, I'm saying, well, that's zero. Well, that was my next question. To what extent do you define a performance advantage? Because the very fact that running shoes are more te technologically advanced than they were 20 years ago yeah. surely is a performance advantage. But you're saying it's the what percentage is it a performance advantage to the point where it becomes unequal? Right. And also, to what extent does it affect everyone the same way? And yeah. the thing that's really interesting is that in both the lab studies that have been published so far, not a single person has not improved in the, in the Vaporfly. 
So it's pretty it's pretty conclusive. So some people are getting 7%, some yeah. people are getting 2%, yeah. but nobody's getting zero. And when you look at other studies in the past, you get responders and non-responders. Everyone responds to the shoe. It seems to make a large enough difference that when I'm watching the top six men in a marathon, Berlin or New York, Chicago, now that we're in that season, I don't know whether I'm seeing a breakthrough performance because the athlete is better or because it's the same athlete in a better shoe. Yeah. And that's unique. That's not happened before. So kudos to Nike for creating this, uh, let's call it an ecosystem of carbon fiber plus foam. And there's some debate as to which component contributes more to this and so forth. In my opinion, it doesn't matter. I, th- I think that the authorities need to step in because I don't know how to interpret what Kipchoge's doing. You know, if he... When he, when he breaks world records in the sub two, we've had two of those attempts now. I don't know where that's for shoe or him. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, so in the case of this, I mean, what's fascinating with this particular discussion about the shoe, and we are going to do another podcast about the specific shoe issue, but it's if we know conclusively that it's an advantage, I know that there have been a lot of moves to present the evidence to the IWF so that they can actually do something about it. But the IWF have been quite resistant to that um, because I guess it's something they never really had to deal with in the fact that there is a mechanical doping device in running, which is something that 10 years ago you would have thought that could only happen in cycling. Not one that works. One that so works, yes. Nike's not the first people who've tried yeah. this. Um, Darren Stephenson's a biomechanist from Canada who introduced the carbon fiber plate to an Adidas shoe many years ago but didn't get, I, I think, geometry right. Um and so there was a study came out very recently showing that with his shoe, the, the, the energy loss at the big toe, let's, let's call it for simplicity's sake, was reduced, but the carbon fiber plate increased the energy at the ankle. So you gained in X, but you lost in Y, yeah. net result zero. Nike seems to have solved that problem. And so then that's a tech breakthrough, no doubt, but it puts a dilemma on the table of the authorities that they've never dealt with. The only time that they've really had to deal with this concept is when Oscar Pistorius wanted to run in the able-bodied Olympics. Yeah. And then they had the same problem because he had these carbon fiber limbs, which which he said gave him no advantage and, and biomechanists and so forth started arguing did. I thought it was very clear that there was an advantage because A, they were exceptionally lightweight. Um, he hardly had to move them you only have to move any mass to reposition your limbs. And B, the, the carbon fiber is just a better tendon than tendon is yeah. because it functions like a spring. That's not to say that it bounces of its own accord, but it loses less energy every stride. And that's massively beneficial. But then he had disadvantages in other ways that, had, compen- yeah. that potentially leveled it out. So he didn't have the balance to start, which yeah. is why his 100 was so weak relative to his two and four. Um, and in the end, that's that's kind of why he, he won that appeal and was allowed to compete in 2012. And that's now in play again because there's a there's a 400-meter runner from the U.S. who's faster than him. Here in South Africa, we've got an 800-meter runner who's running pretty close to world-class times on those carbon fiber blades. So that's not going to go away. Yeah. But the shoe, the Nike Vaporfly, has put that same conversation on the table for all athletes. Yeah. And the problem with it is, similar to, to Speedo, is that you've got athletes who are tied into commercial sponsorship deals. So people can flippantly say, well, everyone should just run in the same shoe. Yeah. But that's a Hobson's choice for an athlete. 
I mean, tell you what, my, my brother who lives in Sydney, a very good runner, and uh, he's been desperate to try and get a hold of a pair of these shoes. He sent me a message this morning saying, I can finally order my pair of Nike 4% flies because that's what it, the marketing has worked and also the science has worked. And to be honest, if I was a competitive runner and I could buy a shoe that gave me uh, some sort of advantage and, I, and it was proven to be an advantage, I would buy it. Yeah, there was sure. a, I think it was in Dubai earlier this year. An Ethiopian sponsored by Adidas ran in them and painted over them to make them look uh, like Adidas. Not because, the first time that's happened. <laughs> yeah, because now you've got this guy who's probably getting, I, I don't know, five, ten thousand dollars to appearance fee to run in a shoe. Or if he if he gets a podium, he gets a shoe bonus. But he's looking at this and saying, if I'm not in shoe X, I can't yeah. get the bonus. So this is a catch twenty two. So this is why it's not so simple as just go out and buy the shoe. Yeah. Um and just like Speedo distorted the integrity and the commercial landscape in swimming, I think the shoe's doing the same. And I, I, I would imagine, well, I would imagine they won't do anything about it because it's Nike. Well, I was going to ask you a pretty much. So if we had to like wrap this discussion about the shoe up in, in, a, in, a, in one question, as a scientist, should the shoe, the Nike Vaporfly, be banned? Yes. Should be. In my opinion. Because... Not as a scientist now, as a person who watches marathon running, as a fan who loves the sport, I want to know that I'm seeing a sincere result that has integrity physiologically. Um, if I told you that the that the guy winning was was doping, you wouldn't you wouldn't trust the result. No, technology might be giving him as much compared to the guy who comes second. So I'd rather not have that confounder affect my interpretation. And people say, "Oh, the guy's doing the same work." He's not. That's the point. He's, he's applying the same work as he did before and he's going 1%, 2% faster. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. So I, so for me, simple answer is yes. Obviously, it's more, more complex when you get into the detail. Still to come. Because they're not used to the energy contribution from the equipment. You know, the famous Comanechi routines that got perfect scores are now warm-up. sweet spot of the racket was the size of a penny. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move on to uh, an interesting... Sort of, we've gone through the sports that potentially have gone against technology taking over records. We've gone towards the controversial area around the Nike shoe and running and how that potentially could impact uh, running and athletics and marathon running. Sports like Formula One and ice skating got a great story, but I, I, sorry, speed skating. But Formula One's a good example where there are there is a lot of discussion about whether Formula One drivers who is the best driver when actually so much depends on the technology of the cars? Yes. And Formula One fans, and I'm just for the sake of um, transparency, I'm not a massive Formula One fan, so I'm not even going to speculate on the technological innovations and um, gadgetry around that sport. But they would argue that, I mean, half the appeal in Formula One is the technology. Yeah. More, more even. Yeah. So, so Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The car rider unit, call it an ecosystem if you want, the same as we did for the shoe, 
is the point. So then it maybe doesn't matter as much. But again, my bias is I'm there to see the athlete. And those guys are unbelievable athletes. Yeah. But I can't tell you who's the best driver. I can only tell you who's the best car driver unit. And that's, again, where, in my opinion, the technology makes a bigger difference to the result than the difference between drivers. And that skews my ability to interpret it. So yeah. my philosophy then is that it's not, well, I'm not going to say it doesn't have integrity because, as I said, it's a different concept. But that's the problem with the sport from my from where I stand. And I guess in, in motorsport, it's, it's, uh, that is part of the game. The, the mechanical side of it is the team event to some extent exactly. because it's how who can develop the fastest car. Yeah. But to also, and, I, and mean, I remember, but, sorry, I yeah. remember when Schumacher was at the peak of his powers. Yeah. They used to say that his biggest advantage was how well he was able to communicate with his engineers Correct. to optimize the car's performance. So then he is an active role player in his own performance, and that's maybe quite different. Yeah. And then mad respect to those guys. I mean, I, I'm not being, I hope I'm not coming across as disparaging of Hamilton and Raikkonen and all the, Vettel sure. and all these guys. But it, it, my, but it's my just a different is that issue. It's a they've, different, earned, they've earned the right to some extent. People like Vettel and Hamilton and those kind of guys have potentially earned the right to be in those teams with the best technology because they've come through the ranks. And Schumacher is a prime example. I remember when he first started, I think he was driving in a bit with Benetton, who were well, it's like the f- top of the the pile back then. Um, and as a result of his performances at Benetton, he moved into the, the big teams and as a result became, as we, as we all know. And I think the same applies to the, the, the Hamiltons of this world. They haven't got there by being chumps in a car. They've got there because they're good and therefore they've got the big drives. So to some extent, there's a natural progression in terms of their ability. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt they're not chumps. I mean, yeah. if you put me in that car, it would be, <laughs> that thing would be a weapon that would harm only me. Um, so I would, I would lack the ability to make that, to, uh, to even deliver 50% the value of that car, whereas those guys are delivering 95, north of 95% of that car for yeah. argument's sake. Yeah. Um, so that's true. I would, I would question whether it is a true meritocracy. I mean, if I'm going into Formula One like he is now and my surname is Schumacher, I'm getting a better car because of my father. Um, so is, is it is it merit? Do you earn your way into the best car or do you get a bit lucky? Maybe that's true of all sports though. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Now the speed skating story. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the new – this is quite a controversial topic in the, in the sport of speed skating around this new skate that was developed. It was at the time. I mean yeah. some of the quotes which we'll read you shortly from, from athletes and officials – but in the 1980s, the Dutch, who are, there's no doubt, the, the Dutch are to speed skating what Kenyans are to distance running, dominant, yeah. right? And it's a cultural thing, an environmental issue, social and so forth. And some scientists from Holland in Amsterdam developed a skate with a hinge. Because before that, the speed skating, had, basically it was attached to two points at the bottom of the, sh- of the skate. And in other words, the one that you get if you go to the ice rink with your friends. It's exactly, yeah. exactly. And the problem with that at the time was thought to be that you were limited in the range at which you could apply power on the ice. Because at some point your foot had to come off the ice. If you left it on too long, the tip of the skate would catch the ice, you'd be off balance, you'd lose speed and so forth. So there was a, there was a barrier to how much your ankle could contribute and also how much knee extension you could get as you drove or pushed off at the back. And these guys figured that if they put a hinge on the front, you could actually keep the skate in contact and in a better alignment for longer and therefore add power or work. And so they developed what they called a slap skate, uh, also known as a clap skate, depending on who you wish to, to listen to. And 
What was really what strikes me as interesting in this story is that when it was developed, it didn't revolutionize the sport right away. Because it was the 1980s that this skate was first used. And these are scientists, so they are systematic. Um, and they're good scientists, by the way. I know a couple of them because the, the stuff I used to do on pacing, many of them were involved in. Because yeah. speed skating and pacing, it's a, it's a great sport to study it. Mm. Uh, they were systematic. They were quite logical in their process. They were evidence-driven. And they had evidence that the skate was going to be beneficial. But it took a decade before elite-level skaters adopted it because they were cautious and they were, they were conservative. And they recognized that this wasn't free performance. It's not as though you just put the skate on and did the same thing as normal and got 2% faster. You actually had to change the way you skated. There was a, there was a barrier to adoption, if that makes sense. Yeah. But by, by the mid-1990s, uh, people had started to come around. And so in the lead-up to the 1996 World Champs, or the, um, I think it was then, uh, they, they interviewed a number of athletes, and, and one of them is Chris Whitty. says, our sport has hardly changed in 80 years. Now in one year, we've had to go from traditional skates to these machines on ice. She'd end up breaking world records using the skate, so she came around. Uh, another one who was an official uh, said, we want to keep the sport pure. To our thinking, this is no different than doping or corking a baseball bat. So, so there was a lot of traditionalists in there who saw this new tech as an attack on the integrity of the sport. Yeah. Um, yeah. The conversation quite, quite, quite passionately too. <laughs> so it's almost like the conversation we had 10 minutes ago about the shoe was being had in 96 about the skate. Yeah. I think a couple of differences were that this, at the time, this skate was not thought to add energy for free. And listening to one of the developers or scientists, a guy called Joster Koning from the Netherlands again, he, he's very clear and he's, he, he takes great lengths to explain, he goes to great lengths to explain that this wasn't free energy. You had to still do the work yeah. to make the skate work for you. So that was one philosophical difference. And the other one is that there wasn't a manufacturer who basically owned it. So there wasn't this commercial, I mean, speed skating in the 1990s maybe wasn't as, as commercial as swimming in the late two, in the 2000s and running is now. So it, it, didn't face the same, it faced the same criticisms and the same philosophical issues, but not maybe the same adoption barriers and so forth. But by the time it got adopted into sport, I mean, it was, it was one to 2% more effective and world records plummeted and pretty soon everyone had to be in it. So it changed speed skating. There's no so question. It, it, in a way, it, it did tick the boxes that you've already mentioned. It was available to everybody. It wasn't exclusive to some. So in other words, it was, it, everybody could use it. And the person that was good on the classic gold skate could go into the skate and, and if they mastered it, they would be better. Yes. So it was an improvement, but it was an improvement for everybody. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. And so I are, mean, we, are we getting closer to what tech, where tech should be allowed or not allowed? Does it feel like we're getting closer in this discussion now? Depends on your philosophical framework <laughs> to begin with. I'm sure there are some people who would argue that it shouldn't have been allowed then and hold that opinion today. Yes. Um, it is now. Now in 2019, I mean, at the at the Winter Olympics a year ago, no one's even thinking about it anymore yeah. because it's become the new normal. Yeah. In the same way that maybe in 15 years' time, shoes with carbon fiber plates, springs, they they don't think it should be called a spring. I mean, I'm using their own word uh, for it. With this foam, might be the new normal. 
and everyone will be two or three minutes faster than they were in 2015 before that shoe existed. So maybe this is part of the normal evolution. I don't want to come across like a technological Luddite, but uh, right now we're in the turbulent phase of transition with shoes in the same way that speed skating was in the mid-1990s. So can we define then that tech, it, tech should be, the, the, the input of the tech should be equal so that the output is the same based on whether the tech is there or not. I'm, I'm not voicing this correctly, but it's about input versus output in terms of performance. So in other words, the same athlete, if the same athlete uses two different kinds of tech, if they are better with a different kind of tech, the output is what defines the change whether the tech is an advantage. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I understand what you're getting at. I, I'm not I, explaining it very well. No, but I couldn't think of it. I can't think of a better way to explain it either. I guess. So what you're saying is that you don't want to, you don't want to create a free advantage. Yeah. You want to create a, an advantage that still has to be earned in the same way that I can improve my performance by getting stronger, but that's going to require me to actually do some time and put in effort. You know, that's, that's tech. I mean, if, if I got, access to training equipment that over the course of two months might improve me by 1%, no problem. Yeah. But if, if I get an acute benefit that's not available to others and it doesn't require any action on my part, then maybe there's a philosophical challenge. I don't know if we're panning ourselves into a corner here or not, but, <laughs> but, but yeah. That is a philosophical one. I agree. Yeah. 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 I mean, some of the is I suppose one of the issues is how quickly does it happen? If a guy, if a guy showed up um, with a new tennis racket or new strings that were five percent better and gave him five percent more power overnight, people would object. There's no question they would. Yes. But if it happens slowly enough, the slow evolution, incremental nature of it, makes it possible for everyone else to match that. Yeah. So it comes no down one, to availability at the end of the day, doesn't it? Yeah, and there's also fit to athletes. So when I watch golf. I'm not seeing the top 30 guys use the same equipment yeah. because there's a, there's a bit of wiggle room there for them to try out different technology, different balls, different golf uh, stiffness of the clubs and so forth because he can experiment and optimize it for himself. So then we, we have no problem because we still assume that the best golfer, the entire package, tech plus golfer wins. Same for tennis, same for all these things. And, and there's a lot of nuance that I'm – I mean, if I'm not knowledgeable of swimming, my knowledge of speed skating is even worse. Yeah, but it's a good example. But it's an example where yeah. they, they themselves will argue, and, and just to read for you something here is they subsequently discovered that the initial theory for why the skate would help is not entirely true. It was supposedly going to allow you to access ankle power and knee extension power. turns out that that's not really the, the reason. It, and instead, it seems to be that it changes the lever arm, the lever length. And so to read this here, it talks about with standard speed skates, the foot rotates around the front point of the blade, which is located a considerable distance in front of the toes. The long classic blade forms a large lever, which is difficult for the calf muscles to set in motion. The position of the hinge on the clap skate is under the ball of the foot, and this reduces the length of the lever. And so his calf muscles can in sense switch to a lower gear. This makes the movements more effective. But then it goes on to talk about how there's a complex interaction and it's it's still down to feel. It varies for different athletes and so forth. So it, it's 
it's never quite as straightforward as just here, put this on and you'll be 2% faster. Whereas I feel like the shoe and the swimsuits just did that for everyone. So one of the interesting sports that uh, when we were preparing for this podcast, I was actually quite surprised at this. When we talk about sports that have gained technological advantages, you don't think about gymnastics. But one of the points that you pointed out to me was that gymnastics is probably the one sport, one of the many sports that have really developed massively because of the advances in technology around the equipment that is used. Yeah. So I didn't think that either until I spent a little bit of time with a fairly accomplished gymnastics coach who is is quite particular about tracking these things. And he explained to me, and it's fairly obvious when you think about it, is that as technology has improved the equipment that is used, not only for competitions, but training, it has enabled gymnasts and their coaches to change their horizons for what's possible. Um, and when this podcast goes out, I will put on my website a video clip that shows you some gymnastics from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. <laughs> and you will see it is a different sport. Now, part, Certainly different hairstyles. Well, yeah, different <laughs> every. But but the the athleticism of the modern gymnast is so different that that it is it's not even comparable. Yeah. Even even to thirty years ago, and a big driver, not the only one, because part of this is that humans challenge their own boundaries. They say, well, today we did one somersault. Next time we'll do two. Then we'll add in a twist or whatever it is, right? So and we'll change the position from a tuck to a layout and all that sort of stuff. So. There's, there's, there's innovation driven by ambition and desire and just the quest to be better, but a lot of that is enabled by tech. And so when you look at, for instance, the beam, uh, yeah. sorry, not the beam, the high bar and the uneven bars, the flex in those beams today is, I mean, they, they have 20 centimeters worth of displacement compared to their start position. They right. used to be made of wood. They didn't flex at hardly all. at all. Yeah. Um, the floor is now cushioned and springier than ever before. The coach told me the funny story is they would train on their f equipment and then go to competitions where it's better, newer equipment, and they would over-rotate. Yeah. So they'd execute the same move and they'd find that they were half a turn too much because they're not used to the energy contribution from the equipment. Yeah. So, so, so what that does is it very slowly, incrementally again, changes the horizons for what coaches and gymnasts feel is possible. Yeah. So it's a it's an indirect effect, but it's also a direct one. And because you don't think of a sport like gymnastics as being advanced by technology, we, we, we forget that it is. I mean, it, it, that's why it was such a – look at somebody like Simona Biles. What she's doing is absolutely incredible, but also – there is some contribution from the technology which might not have been available to somebody like Nadia Comaneci, for instance, yeah. um, 30 and, years ago. And not just over 30 years, but the haves and the have-nots today. Yeah. So what access do you have to that equipment and training? Yeah. Your ability as Simone Biles or her coaches or any Olympic-level gymnast to execute moves, and there are scoring books now that grade the moves that are done and so forth. It's quite sophisticated at the, at the level that it's scored. The stuff that would have earned you big points 20 years ago isn't even in the book <laughs> because they've had to adapt and evolve again in response to human evolution, not yeah. human evolution, but performance evolution. And that is in not a large part, but in part dictated by how much technology evolves. So the athlete of 2019 is a different athlete to the athlete of 1999 and a very different athlete to the athlete of 1979-69. So, you know, the famous Comaneci routines that got perfect scores are now warm-ups. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> so the sport has evolved out of sight and technology is a big driver. Another obvious example of that is the Fosbury flop in high jump. Yeah. So 1968, engineering student Dick Fosbury shows up and wins gold using a method of clearing the bar. He goes over backwards on his back head first, Impo- like crazy. Yeah. That would not have been possible had it not been for soft landing mats. So that's another example of where the environment has enabled the innovation. I was wondering where you were going with that because I was saying that's more technique, but you're right, it's because of the soft landing So I was very lucky. I've got a friend who lives up in Maine and she's good friends with Fosbury and I was super fortunate. I mean, cool thing to do. Went out for dinner with him a couple of years ago. I love to see him lying down on a sofa just for fun. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's a tall glass of water, even even standing up. So he clearly had the right stuff. Remember the genes versus training. But he was an engineer, so I think it gave him insights that maybe were not available to others. There were lots of people playing around with different techniques of clearing the bar because it used to be a scissors, then it was a western roll, then it was the straddle in the 1960s. Yeah. But the thing that constrained them was that they had to land on their feet because they were landing in a sand pit. Pole vault is the same. You couldn't yeah. jump six meters because you'd break your legs when you landed. Yeah. Um, so, so it required... So even a cushion mat... Is a technological advance. That was the thing that opened the door. So the technology then changed the horizon for what might be possible, and then human ingenuity goes through the door, as it were. So that's an example. Tennis rackets, like, again, we spoke Federer versus Lever, irrelevant comparison, but why? Because of the power game they play now. And so technology, the equipment, has changed the athleticism of the player. I mean... Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, uh, Kyrgios even, when he's not losing his mind, the athleticism of the modern player, they're different. You'd think they're different species. They're not, but the technology constrained them in the past where now it's enabled them. And so they've become taller. Yeah. The servers, beca- they hit the ball 30% harder. The rallies are completely different structure compared to how they used to be. And that's, so that, again, that's tech, changing skill execution, Changing athleticism. And, and to, for the purists in us, I mean, when I look at uh, tennis, I was a mad tennis watcher back in the 80s, watching John McEnroe and Ivan Nendl and those kind of guys. And there was a finesse about the game, which was, even if you watch YouTube videos now, there was a real finesse about the game because it wasn't so much about power. Now it feels that because of that technology, it feels like there's only one way to play. Am, am I right in saying that? It, it feels like that ability to win in different ways has been lost just to the like the one-dimensional game, and, and, and tennis is potentially more boring. I mean, it feels that way, but then yeah. we say that, but then a month or what was it, two months or whatever it was ago, more than that now, uh, Federer Djokovic at Wimbledon is an epic all-time yeah, match. for sure. Unbelievable excitement, because in a sense, you're still seeing a competition and there's a degree of integrity to it and so on. But I understand what you mean. I remember when I was playing more tennis when I was in high school, it was the era of big serve and volleyers against baseliners. And when you yeah. watched a match where, say, Rafter played Agassi or Ivanisevic, even Sampras Agassi, you had a strength against a different strength. Yeah. And so there was a real intrigue in how the skill sets matched up. Yeah. Nowadays, maybe Federer is slightly accepted because he seems to have a, I don't know if it's marketing or real, um, but, but when I watched Djokovic Murray when he was active, Nadal, I feel like I'm watching two guys doing a very similar thing and it's a question of who does it better and it's just yeah. power game and so forth. So I get what you're saying. For me, it hasn't taken away the enjoyment as long as there's competitive integrity, but I appreciate the nuance. Wouldn't it be a cool... Because hy- what you're saying is that the technology around rackets these days in tennis 
is allows that game because the rackets are just more advanced. The strings are yeah. different. Uh, you it's, can string things to a precise measurement now, whereas 20 years ago it was more difficult to do that. And the, and the guts that they use on strings is way more resilient. Yeah, the weighting of the racket yeah. compared to wood. I mean, remember Bjorn Borg's, I mean, the, the, the size of, Bjorn, the, the, the precision that he needed to hit the ball was unbelievable because yeah. the, the sweet spot of the racket was the size of a, Penny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas now, now you can hit the ball on the sort of side near the frame, and and yeah. it, it still does what you're intending it to do. So the forehand changes. I mean, it, it does change the game. I play a bit of squash, and even in squash racket development, the squash racket has changed size. And I yeah. in my squash bag, I've got a racket that I used 20 years ago, which is still alive, and it's round. Uh, but the modern racket I use is almost a sort of a, a, a tear shape, and the way that you hit the ball is very different with those two rackets because one is you have to hit it cleanly, mm. um, but now the game has changed. You don't have to hit as ankly and you don't have to hit as with as as much a, um, a swing as you did in the old days, which makes the game probably more precise but changes the game to some extent. It becomes less about hitmanship, for want of a better word, and more about just the ability to hit the ball down the down the line yeah, or down and, the down and, the, down and the maybe the, the limit becomes athleticism yeah. as opposed to skill because. Yeah. My ability to cover the court, uh, to move three or four meters in the half a second that I have over and over and over for three hours is now the, now the maybe limiting factor. So it's not a coincidence that tennis players have gotten 10 centimeters taller in the last two or three generations. It used to be the Grand Slam champions and top 10 in the world were the same height as the average person. They're now one or more standard deviations taller. So that's that's definitely changed the way it is, it's played. So... Again, when you look at Nadal and that forehand, that that vicious helicopter swinging forehand, he's getting on average three and a half thousand revs per minute on the ball. Sometimes upward of five. No one else is coming close to that. Sampras was in the low one thousands. Agassi, Courier, those guys. Now, in part, that's because he wants to hit that shot, but it's also because the tech has allowed him to hit that shot. So again, it's it shifted the horizons for what's possible, and then there are knock-on effects to that. So it's another. Interesting example, not dissimilar to the Fosby flop. Yeah. Tech drives innovation and therefore skill. Gymnastics, tech drives the horizons, therefore the skill and so forth. And it changes the athlete. Still to come. But now you're enslaved by the heart rate monitor and you end up doing exactly the wrong thing. So that's an example of technology leading you in the wrong direction. Okay, so we talked a little bit about all the advantages of tech and uh, where some techs are accepted within sports, some not. When does tech become a bad thing? In other words, there's there's a lot of talk about how tech has become we almost become over reliant on tech for performance. Um, is there a, a way to measure that or a discussion around that? Uh, certainly not to measure it, but I think so. Now it's, it's more around the data that tech gives us potentially, not necessarily yeah, tech so, itself. Yes, so it's the it's the indirect effect of tech on how we make decisions around training, and this has primarily been driven by computers. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's remarkable. I'm wearing on my wrist a, a, a device that for $400 or whatever it is, gives me access to data that even 25 years ago, an elite athlete would have had to go and seek specialist help to get. Yeah. That's, that's how low the barriers to data have become. And I think that in response to that, most people over-innovate, rely too much on gimmicks without understanding the problem and would benefit more from filters than actual tech application. In other words, there's too much needless 
application of technology for most people. Okay, so give us an example. The one I can think of, and you might be able to sort of uh, uh, to, to question me on this, is Chris Froome um, is known for looking down at his power meter going up a climb in the Tour de France, whether he does that actually himself or not. There's, there's always a question about that. But there, there, is a, there is a decision made there where people say, well, he's just looking at his power meter, therefore he knows what watts he can hold for 20 minutes, and therefore he rides at those watts. So he's, he's almost like this sort of computer-generated machine, and that's that's what he does. Yeah. It takes out the human part of that. Is that where tech becomes almost over-reliance on tech? Well, in his case, you, he would argue, they would argue that they're winning races that way. It's a successful strategy, so how can they be over-reliant? For the entertainment perspectives that we watch the sport for, it does. It takes away the the, the panache and the, the joie de vivre of the guy attacking on instinct, the Pantani, even Contador was like that. So I get that. Um, I so, so, so for me, that's probably not an example of over-reliance on tech, but I understand why people might be frustrated by it. I think that because he's got a team of people with him and they understand what the numbers mean, they have used the tech to set the ceiling. And when that happens, tech makes us more conservative. That's yeah. probably not the same mistake that people are making when they use their tech without a team of experts to guide them to make training decisions, diet decisions, lifestyle decisions. So I'll give you two examples of where I think people over-rely on tech. Number one is that they, well, well both of these in, have in common that the gimmick replaces the fundamental. And so, so this is quite an important concept is that people often think that the way to improve is to innovate. And yeah. sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's to de-innovate and it's to go back to basics and just get the fundamentals right. But because we're all now been bombarded by marginal gains nonsense, we, we're looking for 1% when... You know, we're basically on our knees looking for the penny lying on the floor and there's a $10 note on the table. Let's find that first, right? Right. So example number one is in team sports GPS. You know, now you can track exactly how far the player runs, how fast, how many times he sprints, how much time he spends above certain speed zones. That, that data is so large and potentially overwhelming that I think it can blind you to the actual problem. Does that make sense? In other words, why? what is, it, what is the false... Well, to that. one example is I remember coaches used to say that my player is capable of running seven kilometers in a game. And when he gets to that point, I'm taking him off. Now, what, that, that needn't be true because the context of those seven kilometers matters. So you become, okay. you become enslaved by a number without understanding its context and the pre pretext to it. Another example from GPS is coaches will evaluate performance based on how many meters of high-speed running you do. And I remember seeing Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo did the least. Now, what, are you going to not pick them because they don't sprint as much as other people? Yeah. Maybe they don't sprint because they're good and they don't need to. So, so when you become – people respond to what they can measure. Yeah. And if you measure the wrong thing, you create the wrong response. And that's the problem. The, the other example for our endurance athlete listeners is let's say you wake up in the morning and you're going to make training decisions based on resting heart rate. Is that valid? How accurate does that? How accurately does that predict your outcome? Nowadays, people can go and have genetic tests. That's an example of technology, and that genetic test is going to tell you whether you're injury prone, whether you should do endurance or strength power exercise. It's going to tell you what foods you should eat. How valid is that? Well, how valid is it? Well, it's, it's not. Are you saying it's not? That's why all the position statements say that at this point, 
the predictive value of those technologies is not high enough to change the decision based on. So let's say you have a hundred. So let's, let's just simplify that. So in other words, what you're saying is when I look at my heart rate in the morning and it's 10 beats higher than it was yesterday, I say, well, I shouldn't train today because I am not recovered or I'm not training. And so what's the, what's the argument against that? 10 is enough. Okay, 10, 10, is, 10 is a big change. Okay. But it might, but even then it's just a number. It's a data point without context. Right. It's only information and knowledge and wisdom if you interpret and filter it and apply it correctly. So maybe, so maybe for, for example, how would I apply that correctly for me as an endurance athlete? You have to ask whether there's a reason for it being elevated on okay. that morning. Was it a bad night's sleep? Because a bad night's sleep needn't mean that you need to change your training approach. Yeah. But if there's another explanation for it. I've got a two-year-old. Then, <laughs> well, that may require that you change your training approach for a number of years. Um, <laughs> I get so, you. Yeah. So, so, so resting heart rate is a really basic example. But the, the principle is how much does X predict Y? Y is performance, it's fatigue, whatever you want to frame it as. And if the, if the predictive power is 50%, in other words, half the time you have X, you only have Y, the other half you don't, that's useless. Yeah. You might as well toss a coin. Yeah. Give your dog a choice of two biscuits. Yeah. So if he takes this biscuit, I'm going to train hard. And if he takes this one, I'm not. That's, how, that's what your technology is basically giving you. It's no better than a coin toss. So, so that's where people, I think, need to be careful and they need to have a, a healthy degree of skepticism because innovation drives opportunism and opportunities to sell you gadgets. Yeah. And those gadgets are often misleading. So outside of elite sport... Even even inside of elite sport, there's a lot of over-reliance on gadgetry. I mean, I've worked with some professional football teams mm. who definitely over-measure. Every week, they will do a battery of tests. They will do neuromuscular tests and flexibility, strength, and so forth. But how much do those tests actually predict injury risk, performance, fatigue? Because if you're going to make decisions on them, maybe it needs to be 80%. Because if it's not you probably were better off not knowing yeah, and listening to your body. And that's why some teams, I know Golden State Warriors basketball, all the tech in the world, you know, these days you get biomarkers, you can take your saliva and you can look for certain enzyme levels and so forth, cortisol, hormone levels, and you can make decisions on that. Or you can just ask people how they feel. And that's what they do. So the daily monitoring, how well did you sleep, scale of one to 10? How sore are you? Do you feel recovered? Hydration status, illness score. That might be better than fancy technology that looks at hormone levels and yeah. heart rate variability and so forth. So sometimes there is, there is a big school of thought that even when it comes to effort levels, rate of perceived exertion is probably the most accurate way to measure your yeah. effort level than a heart rate monitor or any other Exactly, device. because your heart rate, remember, is the output. It's the outcome. Yeah. So is RPE, but but... So, so for instance, sometimes people say, well, if I can't elevate my heart rate, I must push harder. But sometimes you can't elevate your heart rate because your, your legs are just fatigued and your brain can't activate the muscle in order to elevate the heart rate. But now you're enslaved by the heart rate monitor and you end yeah. up doing exactly the wrong thing. So that's an example of technology leading you in the wrong direction because you didn't understand the principle that underpins heart rate. And I, again, I, my PhD was on fatigue, performance, and we studied RPE. And I joke sometimes, I say, yeah, I've got a PhD in basically asking people how they feel. <laughs> Basic stuff. 
But that, that perception of effort is actually the most complex, complete integration of all the different body systems. And when you only use, when, sorry, when you use tech to only measure heart rate, then in theory, you're filtering out 90% of the value and you might make the wrong decision half the time. You're better off not knowing. So that last sentence you said they're better off not knowing. I give an example. A friend of mine did a cyclocross event this weekend and um, he, I said to him, whatever you do, don't look at your heart rate because you're going to be going for 40 minutes flat out and if you look at your heart rate, you're going to freak out because it's going to be higher than you, what you would expect it to be. Yeah. He didn't. At the end of the the end of the session and the, the race, he downloaded his heart rate. He was in zone five for pretty much ninety five percent of it. But is that is that where using tech, having a heart rate visible there, might actually have impeded his performance because he thought, "Crikey, I'm sitting at zone five for the entire race." Um, but if not seeing it, actually just allows him to feel that rate of perceived exertion himself and not be reliant on tech in that way. Exactly. Because yeah. in that instance, again, it's an example of divorcing the data from the theory. Yeah. Uh, if you only looked at heart rate and didn't understand the concept, context, it would give you the wrong information. So a paper came out many years ago now, because I mean, this is actually quite a basic application of tech that misleads people. Imagine how complex technology might be misleading using the same principles we're discussing now. So this paper comes out. They, they document heart rates at a range of running speeds in, in a bunch of guys. So they're running at four minutes a K, four, whatever it is. And then they measure the same thing in a race, running the same speed, and the heart rate's 10 beats higher. Because it's a race situation. There's adrenaline, there's a bit of anxiety there, you're, you're, you've got people around you that you don't normally have. And I remember way back when heart rate monitors first came out, Nick Bester, who was a, a comrades ultramarathon champion here in South Africa, he made a decision not to go with, was it Salazar? Alberto Salazar, yeah. With Salazar running the Comrades Marathon in like 94, 2, yeah, 3, something, like something early 94, 90s. Think, yeah. Early 90s. And he, he, he was basing that on his heart rate in a race situation contextualized against a training situation. So it's not valid. Yeah. And sure enough, he let Salazar get ahead of him. And then with 8K to go, he, he woke up and he flew home over 8K. But he yeah. left himself too much, too to, much do. to do. So, a classic example of data technology providing data divorced from context, misleading the athlete. And again, basic. But imagine how much more complex and how much easier it is to make this mistake when the data is more complicated. So, in the case of this, and I don't want to hop on too much about sort of the the, the heart rate monitor and power meters that we see in endurance sport, but to some extent, is it correct in saying that? Tech devices like heart and monitors, power meters have their place in training, but potentially not in a race situation or in a match situation. And that that applies maybe to all sports. They have their place in race situations in a very specific context where you are so good that you can control the race and be conservative using tech. And in that instance, tech acts as the handbrake. And so no one else is able to challenge you. And that's the thing that Sky had is they just, they knew that if they just did 400 watts for this long, no one else is beating them, so let's go and do it. They didn't need to be more aggressive than that. So tech introduced conservatism that worked. But for most people, the, the, the root cause here is that the lab does not perfectly predict the real yeah. world. And so if you take something that tech provides and you don't understand its context, then you know, it's like, it's like that analogy. I don't even know if this is true. I'm not a comparative biologist. They say that according to physics, a bumblebee shouldn't fly. 
Yeah. Yet there it is, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of that's kind of where this goes is, yeah, the theory says you shouldn't do X, Y, Z, but what if you can? Yeah. And so then maybe tech is actually a constraint. Because the mind an and the human spirit is, is, a, is a factor. We, we forget that we are capable of more than we think we are because the mind actually is a very strong yeah. and you can't, athletic weapon. You can't predict that. You yeah. can explain it after the fact, but you can't predict it moving forward. So, yes, so these are examples where tech can be misleading and potentially constraining. I still think that, like in the case of Nick Bester, it was – wasn't tech's fault. I mean, the number, the number didn't make him make the wrong decision. Yeah, he interpreted it in the incorrect way. So, so yeah, the the you know, it's just a tool. Yeah, and with a tool, you can either build something or you can break it down. So I suppose the next question is, and and we were talking a little bit about this in the in the build up to this podcast. If we look at the developments in tech, in particular, using tech in training, have we become much better sports people now because of tech? In other words, is athletic performance improving or is it just about a, a faster bike or a springier shoe? Are, are we physically better specimens than we were 50 years ago because of tech and data? If you measure physically different specimen by our ability to perform, then yes. Because when you look at Simone Biles executing a triple-double, that's a better athlete than the athlete in 1980. They couldn't do it, but they maybe had the potential. But could they have done it with using the equipment we've talked about? No, of course no. not, because, okay. the equipment because we weren't constrained them. Yeah. So the equipment sets the ceiling right? Uh, or changes the horizons using the language we used earlier. But there's other examples where you know, the world one-hour record, which we spoke about, Chris Boardman in 1996 does 56-point-something kilometers. In 2000, admittedly now he's 32 years old, maybe he's not quite at the peak of the mid-90s, he goes and changes back to the, let's call it withered technology to give a hat tip to David Epstein because he uses that term in his book range. Yeah, so nice too. O- old tech, he has to ride the same configuration as Max. he's riding 49.7 or something kilometers. So seven kilometer difference yeah. as a result of tech. Now, that's over 30, 28 years. And the human machine has not improved, but the technology has allowed the human machine to be better. Does that distinction yeah. that's that distinction clear? Yeah. Uh, In more so, traditional events like athletics and so again, <laughs> friend of the pod, David Epstein, uh, he gets cited more than anyone here. He presents a TED talk where he has gone around and spoken to biomechanists, and they reckon that the cinder track that Roger Bannister runs on is worth one and a half percent. Right. So over four minutes in a mile, that is four seconds. Now, the result of that is that of the 1,500 men to have broken the four-minute mile since Bannister, only about 600 remain when you take away the tech. Yeah. So what we see as advances in human performance might actually owe a very large part to technology. Um Bolt the, versus Gala, Usain Bolt versus a guy like Jesse So again, same, same TED Talk. <laughs> yeah. David makes the that point. Uh, Bolt's running on this specially designed Tartan track, which, by the way, now are optimized for world records in sprints because yeah. that's what draws eyeballs at world champs is they yeah. want 100-meter and 200-meter records. So they make these, these Tartan tracks, this Mondo surface, as hard as possible because then you lose less energy when you land, and that means faster running. Jesse Owens, 1936, 
doesn't have starting blocks. He's digging a hole in the track. With a trowel. With a, with a little garden <laughs> shovel. Literally. Uh, and he's running on cinder tracks. And David has estimated, again, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, David's estimate is that Jesse Owens would be within a tenth of a second of Bolt. So over 73 years of human evolution, technology accounts for most of the performance improvements. Now that's a sobering thought because it means... Despite heart rate exactly. training, despite uh, what we know about physiology. So seven generations of knowledge yeah. reinvested, the growth of sports science, the growth of sports medicine, and we're basically where we were. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of sports scientists want to take credit for performance that's actually tech. I think engineering makes a bigger difference to performance than sports science does. I appreciate that it's an element of sports science, but that's where I sometimes wonder. I look at these Kenyan guys. We, we brought 16 Kenyans out. Most of them had never left Kenya. Yeah. They were running 27, 28 minute 10Ks. They have no devices. They have no tech. No heart rate monitors. No, no fancy, no fancy sports signs. No. Kipchoge now has got all the backing of Nike, and he's still okay. Let's now again we go back to the shoe. He's he's a two hundred three guy. Okay, yeah. he's running two hundred one thirty nine. Is that the shoe? Maybe, yeah. but does all the fancy watches and equipment and training advice from a sports science team make a difference to him? I don't think it does. I think that I think that most of the advancements in human performance are driven by engineering developments, not physiological ones, in those sports. Again, yeah. Nadal is a better athlete than Lever was, but he could be because his environment was so different. I mean, it is controversial to say that because I think a lot of people, and maybe the lesson in this is that don't let the tech dictate your performance. It's certainly an aid. I think one of the advantages of the watch that you wear on your wrist and heart rate monitors and you know, cyclists and runners using Strava, it allows for feedback and I think it improves motivation probably mostly. Yeah. Um, and But whether it actually makes you a better athlete, you know, overall I agree. It's it's something that is, if used carefully, it's it's a lot more fun. But it, as we have shown, only in certain sports does those advancements, those advancements look like they're significant rather than smaller sports that are like running. That's it's pretty pure. Yeah, and and that's the beauty of it. Um, that's why that's why I think I'm in part resistant to what tech might do to running. Yeah, and again, people say, "Oh, but you know, Jim Peters, Roger Bannister running his four minute mile." Now it's I get that it's different, but imagine Roger Bannister running in lane one on Cinder against someone running in Tartan. That's a problem. So yeah. that's where it becomes an issue. But but I agree for ninety nine point five percent of the listeners who are not involved at the cutting edge and you can collaborate with NASA or a university engineering department to optimize their, their tuck position in a wind tunnel or develop new skates or shoes, whatever it is that we've been talking about. The, the, the issue is this, like, do you really need tech or do you need fundamentals? I mean, there has been some tech over the years that uh, people have tried. We talked a little bit about Dennis Lilly's uh, aluminum batting cricket, yeah. how that wasn't really worked. The power balance bracelet, which I know that you as a scientist look very skeptically at that and say that it was complete rubbish. I, I wore one for a while and I was convinced. And maybe so, it was one of those classic examples of um, psychosomatic uh, belief. But, you know, that, that was, those are the classic tech things that obviously have been proven wrong. But yeah. convinced a lot of people, including me, that when I put that bracelet it? on, I, was, I felt stronger. Where is it now? It's sitting in my drawer at home because it's broken. 
<laughs> what do you mean it's broken? Well, I mean, the actual the, the band. Oh, I broken. see the band snap. I still sometimes put it in my pocket to think whether it makes a difference. But I agree. I mean, I know the science. I'm going to ask. That. I'm going to ask your wife <laughs> to put it in your pocket without you knowing. Yes. And then I'm going to ask her to do that ten times, and we're going to see whether you knew. Well, if any, I'm sure many of you who listen to this podcast remember the power balance bracelet, and it was a huge. And in fact, I think they were sued in Australia mm. um, because they couldn't prove that the actual thing had a benefit. And it was a very expensive bracelet. It was just a little. Um, I can't remember what was in it, like a magnet or something. Uh, so, so, so crystal they, or something. They used to call it a holographic crystal, or whatever that means. <laughs> well, it but, worked for me for a short time. But, but that is an example of of technology. That was probably over-marketed and so on. Yeah. And I reckon there's far more instances of that than there is useful tech. Yeah. Um, again, because someone's got to sell you something, we're going to try to. For sure. And so, again, the, what's the message is be a, be a skeptic. Um, yeah. And if you – I think tech has to do one of two things for you. It's either got to simplify what you currently do, and that's where smartphones, apps, Strava, yeah. you know, keep a training diary. A training diary is a massively beneficial thing to keep because not necessarily to go back and look at it every six months, but because the process of evaluating yourself teaches you about yourself. So, you know, when, you, when we monitored, when I was with the South African Sevens rugby team, the players every morning would wake up and on their smartphones, they'd fill in a little online questionnaire, a wellness thing. We spoke about earlier. How did you sleep? How are you feeling? Muscle soreness and so forth. Um, the the, the S&C guy would then get the reports from all the players and he'd start to recognize patterns after travel, who took longer to recover, after hard training, who took longer and so forth. But after three or four months of using it, he didn't need the app anymore because the process of evaluation had taught him about what he was evaluating. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so, so smartphones, tech... Strava, Garmin, Polar, whatever it is, those things teach you. They're tools to teach you. But if you're aware, eventually the tech becomes almost redundant because you become wiser as a consequence. So that's where number one is tech has to simplify and make it easier to do what you already do and works. And more convenient, which and is a big factor. Convenience, yeah. major factor. And then the second thing is tech has to make you better. Now, how is it making you better? It's either going to help you do new things or it's going to help you do the same things in a new way. Yeah. So video analysis. Let's say you are a skill sport athlete. Basic video analysis could unlock 1% to 2% more. Yeah. I remember going to a conference before London 2012, and the, the, the Sports Federation, the Athletics Federation's country, had employed someone called a horizontal jumps specialist. Mm-hmm. And this guy had an engineering degree, PhD in engineering. You know? So his colleagues are trying to put rockets into space, his job was to put people into sand pits. And the way they would do that is they would measure. They knew that long jump and triple jump was three things, speed on the runway, force on the board, angle of takeoff. Okay, I'm oversimplifying because there is a technical component. But they used technology to measure those three things, high-speed cameras, iPads, force plates, and they would analyze the performance. And then in consultation with the coach, they would optimize the A, Bs, and Cs. Right. So that's an example of doing the same thing in a new way and in a better way. Now, that's maybe more sophisticated than most people will ever get access to, but people can ask questions of their... So, for instance, have you ever filmed yourself swimming? Are you aware of some of the easy technical yeah. fixes? That's technology. Um, it's not... I tell you what, filming yourself running is probably one of the most frightening things I've ever seen because you realize how bad you look when you run. 
So that's um, an example. Yeah. Let's say you did that. What would you change? A, a lot. Are you, but would it help? I don't know. Like, don't know. because you're getting this, you're using tech to generate data. The data in this instance is footage of you running. And then you're going to look at that data and you say, if I can change A, B, and C, I'll run better. But that's where, again, remember I spoke about what's the predictive power? Like how well does that change predict a performance benefit? That's not clear. So you could experiment yeah. and you could do drills and you could improve certain different things. Maybe you'll recognize that your core is really weak and you're sinking on one side. That's exactly Fi what it is. Fix that, <laughs> you'll, run, you'll run better. So th these are examples. These are easy fixes using technology. But you have to be sure of two things. Number one is, am I simplifying what I currently do? And number two is, am I going to figure out a new, better way to do what I'm doing? So final point in this uh, point of this discussion today is, is the future of tech. And I'll, I'll give an example of stuff that I find very exciting about the future of tech. Um, I recently am testing a, a, a stationary trainer, which has got a whole bunch of devices. It's got a it's a Wahoo kicker, and uh, I'm just telling you we're not being sponsored by them here, so you know that's uh, legitimate. But it's you put your bike on it, it's got a, um, a device in the front which actually lifts the bike up as if you're climbing up a hill. It also has a device in the front which actually pushes out a certain wind based on your heart rate. So in other words, if you're going um, harder, the, the wind coming out of this headwind device then cools you down, or you can set it so that if you're going down a hill on Zwift, um, it will mimic the wind one of the questions i asked the, the guy that delivered the device to me and i said to him can this device simulate riding into a headwind and he said well not now but maybe down the line it could do that in other words you could have a real life situation now this device allows me to feel like i'm climbing up a hill because it raises the bike up manually it allows me to feel the wind and at the back it's giving me a real-time feel of a course so i can go ride the world championships course in cycling this year um and feel what it's like to be on that course, feel what the wind would be like, and actually what the angle of the bike will be. That is absolutely amazingly immersive tech mm. that it improves my enjoyment of the sport that I love. Yeah, and when that when that meets virtual reality, which it is already on Zwift, then then you are then you are effectively simulating competition, and that's yeah. a, that could be a massive benefit. So, do you think Zwift? I mean, there's talk about some of the Grand Tours having a stage where all the riders are on Zwift. And having a virtual race against everybody else, um, that technology becomes part of the sporting space. I feel like if you slagged off <laughs> if you slagged off tennis earlier because it's become too monotonous and clone-like, imagine what it would be like watching watching that. I, I don't I don't know. But uh, imagine you were able to participate. So I might Finch can compete in the first stage of the cool. Giro d'Italia yeah. up the eight kilometer time trial route on Zwift. And but, I finished five hundred and thirty six. But you could thousandth. do that you could do that without it having to affect the race, sure. Yeah. Right? You don't need all the riders to Why not? Because you could model their performance based on their power meters and their speeds and so forth and still then like just plug that they in. The right? same, still like to know that they did the same as me, even if it was double yeah. the speed. I think I think it's what an example of what I'm talking about yeah, in so terms think, of where future tech goes. Does I, it become a part of a future realm? Does that where tech takes us? If you look at the discussions that people like Elon Musk talk about in terms mm. of how we look at uh, AI, um, how does that move into that space around tech and sport? Because AI will become a factor in every facet of our lives. Yeah, so I think there's three, maybe I'm going to think of others as I speak, but off the top of my head, the one you mentioned, virtual reality type simulations. 
And imagine you've spoken about cycling where you can see a climb and you can experience it a little bit better. Imagine what it's going to be like in football and rugby and American football. You could, you know, pilots are learning on simulators. Maybe sports people are going to learn on simulators. And that what, what that'll do is it'll reduce the physical burden of practice because now I can, you know, bobsled, I reckon video analysis of a bobsled run has changed how they learn the, 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 the run. And that's got to be worth a second over a minute. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the other one is molecular sciences. Um, I was critical earlier about things like biomarkers. That's where you measure, for instance, cortisol as an indication of overtraining. Um, again, I'm not stuck on it, but it's what I work on now is concussion. Technology will one day allow biomarkers to diagnose brain injuries. I In other words, just explain that. Well, how biomarkers work. So when you get a brain injury, there are certain biomarkers that don't exist normally in your system, outside of your nervous system, uh, which then appear. So you can, you can assay them in saliva. There are things called microRNAs. When, when, the, when you have brain injury or when you dope, there's another application there, which only appear when you've taken EPO or have a concussion. And so the reason they're not used now is that they're not specific enough. So you get all these false positives. No one... It's too much noise. So you've got to discern the signal among the noise. But that's where the future will lead to. So I reckon 40, 50 years from now, that's how much of medicine and sports science application performance will look. And then the third one, you mentioned AI, is, is these complex learning systems, you know, like machine learning environments yeah. where, you know, we're so limited at the moment in terms of understanding, because we have to reduce a complex system to one or two things at a time. Uh, so biomechanics is a classic example where we don't understand injury uh, because we can measure the ankle, the knee, and the hip. Yeah. Now we're moving towards methods of measurement that will allow us to measure millions and millions of data points and maybe start to figure out where the signal is. So those are all indirect methods. As for the direct ones, I mean... 30 years ago, oh, well, let me go further back. 50 years ago, who would have seen what Nadal would hit a tennis ball with? So yeah. who's to say what it's going to look like in 2075? Yeah. And it would be, I was going to say this earlier, it would be unbelievably cool to ha have a hypothetical like time machine where Nadal could play Borg with a wooden racket. I think it would be awesome if two tournaments a year had 1976 technology and yeah. let, let the current players play with Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe's rackets. It would be awesome to have a track meeting every year on a cinder track. Absolutely. Uh, it would be so cool to have a randomized Formula One race where everyone just draws straws for who gets to drive <laughs> which car. That would, be, that would be really fun. Come on, let's get this going. But, but anyway, I'm digressing. Um, I love it. No sport will be untouched by tech. I mean, they all are. Just some are direct and others are indirect. And I reckon those three things, big data, Molecular science and virtual reality are going to be the big drivers of sport in the next 50 or, well, less, 20 to 30 years. Professor Rostaker, thank you very much. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.